This Sunday on Capital Connection, Republicans have hammered Democrats for drawing political maps behind closed doors. But when we dug into spending records, you might be surprised what we found. You know, look, we're going to be prepared. We're, we're preparing for hopefully, you know, getting real data and having the tools in place to help um, the public draw map. How a potential backup plan could mix things up as the deadline for redistricting draws nearer. Senate Democrat LG Sims joins us on that issue and the recent police reform debate. And can we still agree on divided, controversial issues in politics? Two members of the same family, but different political parties join us. Representative Tom Bennett and State Senator Scott Bennett. It's all coming up on Capital Connection. From the Illinois State Capitol Rotunda, Capitol Bureau Chief Mark Maxwell is asking the tough questions. This is Capitol Connection. Welcome to Capitol Connection. I'm Mark Maxwell reporting from the Illinois State House on this Sunday, May 23rd. Anticipation is building as Democrats prepare to unveil the long-awaited political maps. Republicans have long called for an independent process, but spending records we recently obtained suggest they could be working on a bit of a backup plan. And it's one we've seen play out before. Old archives at Springfield's public library show a long history of Illinois politicians using power to draw maps for political gain. When House Speaker Michael Madigan filed redistricting maps 30 years ago, House Republican Robert Churchill asked, did you consider an alternative that would give Republicans more opportunities to win? Madigan replied, are you kidding? I thought after you saw the numbers, you would quit. We showed that clip to current House Republican Ryan Spain. They were more for, uh, forthcoming about their intentions back then. I think we still know what their intentions are right now, even under the cloak of secrecy and the uh, hidden map room. Spain is one of several Republicans calling attention to what's going on behind this locked door, where House Democrats are drawing district lines so secret even the governor says he's out of the loop. I don't actually know all the data that's being used. And a delay in census data. The best data to use is the data that's going to come out in, in August. Drove a new wedge between the two parties. The Constitution requires that we pass a map before June 30. But that's only if Democrats insist on shutting Republicans out of the process. And it, it lays out a deadline that goes all the way to October 5th, that if the legislature doesn't act, the bipartisan commission takes place. I have not seen a map from the Republicans. I would have I think I would have liked to have seen what they would like to see. Will you show them to him? No, because we're not we're not drawing maps. At least not yet. While Democrats hold the power to draw the maps, records we obtained show Republicans are spending that way too. The House and Senate combining to spend more than 1.4 million dollars so far preparing to redraw political maps. In the Senate, Democrats spent more than half a million dollars, where Republicans spent nearly 200,000. In the House, Democrats spent just over a quarter million, and House Republicans spent more than $400,000. They've outspent us, so they're, that is very telling of that they are doing something. House Democrat Lisa Hernandez chairs the redistricting committee and doubts Republicans want a truly independent process. What they want is uh, a chance to uh, pick out of the hat. You know, that's this really what it basically comes down to. It's a 50-50 chance. That's their way of getting in there. Does the spending side, does, the, does, does that at all indicate that there is some interest, some preparation underway for Republicans to have a hand in drawing the map? I would love for Republicans to have a hand in drawing the map. Records show House Republicans spent tens of thousands of dollars hiring data consultants, lawyers, buying software, and we asked why they spent $1,500 to hire a locksmith. Someone to try and pick the lock? <laughs> I have no idea. If they ever did find their way inside the House Democrats' map room, several sources who've been inside 
say they might just see this picture from the front page of the SJR in 1991. That, that's like having, you know, Kim Jong-un up on your wall in North Korea and celebrating a, a dictator who is universally taking our state now into an endless tailspin for decades and decades. I, I mean, I'm pretty offended by that actually, that there's a picture of Mike Madigan laughing it up uh, as he sticks it to Republicans. We've heard a lot from House Republicans and Democrats on this redistricting issue, but Senate Democrats quietly are spending more and perhaps doing more at this early stage in the process than anyone else. We'll talk to Senator LG Sims leading the process, a Democrat from Chicago, next. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. Welcome back. If anything big is happening in the Senate, Senator LG Sims is probably right in the middle of it. He joins us now, a Democrat from Chicago. Good to have you with us. Thanks, Mark, for having me. You're in the middle of the budget negotiations right now. I am. Uh, in the middle of the redistricting, which is kind of a big deal going on right now. Oh, yeah. You were in the middle of the police reform and the cash bail bills that were happening at the end of last session into early this year. Uh, you got a lot going on. A lot going on. Pleasure to honor and serve my, my constituents. So that's what I'm trying to do. Uh, I want to get to each of those issues and then uh, something else if I can. But let's start with the redistricting process first. Uh, between the four caucuses, they all get $3 million to spend on preparing to draw those lines. But the Senate Democrats, according to the spending records we've seen so far, are far outspending everybody else. It looks like you're a lot more involved, maybe even than the House Democrats are. Uh, is that a sign that the Senate is sort of leading the way here on this? No, it's a, it's a sign that we're committed to producing a map that's that's transparent, that's fair, uh, that one that respect that respects the diversity of our state. That's what it's commitment to. When will we see it? Oh, very soon. I, I would hope to be able to have public comment for you know, significant amount of time uh, before the 31st, so that we can have input uh, from communities of interest. Uh, we can have you know, criticism, input, uh, discussion. Uh, I think we're going to you're going to see that very soon. Uh, there had so it's always interesting for people watching at home. You may or may not know every Senate district in the state, the 59 Senate districts, has two representatives in it. So it's not just a matter of the House drawing one map willy nilly and the Senate drawing another. They have to interlock. That's right. Well, we, in, our, in our process called nesting, you have the two the two representative districts within the legislative district. So the, the, uh, the lines of the Senate district will be drawn and then the lines for the to representative district within that within that that nest uh, within would be included within the district. Uh, but you're going to have one Senate district sometimes with a very liberal representative and a very pr uh, conservative representative right in the middle of it or vice versa. How does that complicate the efforts as the Senate tries to negotiate with the House? What is that? Do you ever butt heads with the House? I don't think it, I don't think it complicates at all. What we're, what we're trying to do is you know, have a map that reflects the diversity of the state. And that's when you have those, those divergent uh, perspectives, you're able to do that. And that's what the map you'll see coming out. I think we'll, we'll have a, a, a very good representation of the diverse, diverse populations, but also diverse, uh, thought, diverse ideas and thoughts of the population of the state. Just looking at the numbers alone, uh, first of all, we, we've said this on this program a few times for any people watching this for the first time, uh, Illinois maps have been graded by the experts and the maps we have today do grade very highly when it comes to uh, protecting and preserving the political voices of minority groups. I think there are something like 30 plus majority minority districts in the House. There are many of them in the Senate, several in Congress as well. 
but the Hispanic voting populations have not produced as many Hispanic members of the legislature as the black community has. And so that, that disparity was always something to watch for, I think, when creating this new map, right? How do you account for that to make sure that the Hispanic populations are as equally represented? Absolutely, and, that, that, and that's, a, that's a goal of the Senate Democratic Caucus. Uh, it's one that we've, we've, we've invested heavily into, making sure that we identify where those, where those voices are, uh, making sure that as we look at communities of interest, we have a map that, that adequately reflects that. That's why, we, that's why we, we wanted to have hearings across the state uh, where we, we heard from communities of interest, uh, particularly Latino voices, but also black voices, uh, voices from uh, the, the Muslim, Muslim and Arab communities. For, but we, we wanted to make sure we had a process that was fair and respected all of those communities. We heard some Muslim American groups uh, advocating for a district of their own. Will there be one? I, I, I've not seen the final product, uh, but I know we're- You we're, have uh, No, I have not. Uh, what, we are, what we are trying to see, what we're trying to do is work through uh, all of those discussions right now, but we, we, having those discussions and having those communities of interest in, having have a, 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 a very deep involvement is was critical to us. That's why you, you saw so many hearings across the state, and when, when there is a final product, we'll certainly have those continued discussions around the state. Can you address, wh where did some of these rumors come from that uh, some in the Senate Black Caucus weren't happy with a version of the maps? What was causing that? Well, I, 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 can't, I, don't, I can't speak to that, I don't know. Uh, what the rumors were. If you, I say you, 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 maybe you know, you know more about that than I do. I imagine I wouldn't. I, uh, but are you saying that that? Uh, what were there any points of tension as these lines were being drawn? Well, there's. Whenever someone sees a draft, uh, there obviously there are, there are concerns that are raised. Uh, but you, as again, I don't think we're we have we're the final place now. Uh, that's why I say I've not seen a final map. Uh, but I think as we continue to work through that and then as we have the conversations with communities of interest, I think you'll see, again, more of those conversations continue to go on. All right. We haven't addressed uh, the elephant in the room yet, which is that the Republicans say, look, this should be an independent process. The politicians shouldn't be picking their voters. They should give that power to some other panel of non-political people who can draw it without their own self-interest on the line. Yeah. Why aren't we doing that? Well, it, the proposal that the Republicans have to try to advance, it does. It, it can't. It can't be accomplished the way they they want to and try, are trying to accomplish it. Um, what what I think? Why not? Well, first of all, they're they're trying to have a legislative process supersede the constitutional one. Uh, we have a process that's laid out in the Constitution, and the solution that they've proposed is a legislative solution, which would which summarily uh, overrule the Constitution, and you can't have that. Does the Constitution though prevent? An independent committee. So, so the Constitution says that the legislature That's right. has to send the maps. That's right. But it doesn't prevent the legislature from adopting the map and putting their signature on a map that somebody else drew. But, the pro right? but right now, the process says that the legislature adopts those maps. And, and, that's, and that's a process that's in the Constitution right now. The process that the Republicans have laid out, again, it's a legislative, not a, not a constitutional solution. The Republicans say you don't actually have to change the Constitution to still adopt that independently drawn map, just that you have to sign off on it. Well, I, I, we we would we can we have a difference of opinion there. I think our I think our legal I think our legal opinion uh, supersedes that one. Why do you so some other uh, you, so you have sought legal opinion on that? Oh, matter? Well, I, but again, we look, looking at those ideas and looking at what the Constitution says versus what a state legislative statute would say. That's that's longstanding. 
uh, legal, legal precedent. As we look through the spending records of the House of Senate Democrats, the House of Senate Republicans, many of them are hiring lawyers alongside software and data analytics and all the people who could, the experts who can draw these maps. Uh, are you seeking a legal opinion on this question? Uh, the constitutionality, I, I wonder, I don't see anywhere specifically in the state constitution that absolutely spells out that you must use census data for state house districts, your districts in the House and Senate. But in the U.S. Constitution, it does specifically say that the very purpose of the census is for the apportionment or the drawing of the districts of the members of Congress. So could there be a court one day who says, those state house maps, okay, maybe you didn't use census data, fine. But you didn't use census data for the congressional maps, that's not constitutional. I, well, I haven't been involved in any, any discussions where that legal question has been asked. Uh, but as you, you rightfully point out, the Illinois Constitution does not require that we use uh, census data. Uh, I think the framers of our Constitution anticipated an, an instance just like this, which is why they didn't include uh, the requirement that we'd have the requirement for census data. But you're a lawyer. How do you evaluate that question of the constitutionality of not using the full census data for the congressional maps? Is that sound? Well, again, we, we've, I've not had that, have not been in any discussions where that legal question has been asked. I think, but I think that's one of the discussions we'll be having over the next uh, several days and next months here. And our viewers may know we're losing a seat in Congress uh, there. So from 18 down to 17, it should be interesting to see how that uh, comes forward. Okay, so it sounds like we're going to see those maps within the next week, you're saying, because time's running out. I think, you, I, I think it's safe to assume that you will see, the, you will see maps very soon, uh, and there will be adequate time for uh, the public to have, have the ability to review and then have input into the maps. All right, very interesting. There's a lot of buzz in this building as we wait to see what they'll look like. Uh, how will we grade them? What are you looking for? When, when, you, when you look for fairness, when we look at these maps, it's complicated, right? But what should we look to to say, okay, these maps have been fair? Uh, what I'm looking for is the diversity that's represented in these maps. So the, the communities of interest, whether or not they're, they've been protected, and they're, they're represented in this map. But that's from a fairness perspective, that's what I'm gonna be looking for first and foremost. Do you have any concerns that the American Community Survey data undercounts minority populations? Well, again, I think that it's, it's a, it's, it is a, it's a, it's a survey, it's a data that's been used on in a number of different, different occasions. But it was wildly but, off in the estimates about our out-migration. Well, the there governor were, said so himself. There were, there were a lot of folks who were wildly off uh, in those estimates, so it's you know, not, not just the ACS. Uh, and can you give us any idea uh, right now what other kinds of data are also undergirding this map? Well, I mean, again, there are, there are a number. There's a number of data data sets that are out there. Being Such used. as, I mean, it just there just just there's just other data sets that are out there. I never can get anybody to answer that question. I don't know why. Uh, all right, let's move on to the budget. I know you're also in, uh, working in the appropriations. Uh, the state recently had some good news. We had more money come into the state during this pandemic than maybe some uh, forecasters had predicted. So the governor has said, okay, we'll go ahead and put 350 million dollars back into the uh, in new money back into the education funding formula. What are some other ways that the state can revise its budget now that, one, we have more money than we thought we did at the state level, and two, there's this just wave, this crush of money coming from Congress? Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, we've, we, we've got to stop looking at the budget proposal as a single-year prospect. We, we need to be looking at our budget from a multi-year perspective. So the current fiscal year we're in, the year we're planning for, but, the, but then out years as well. It, it, that's what has gotten us into this problem in the first place. We budget from year to year, lurching from crisis to crisis. When we can look at the budget over a multi-year perspective, from a multi-year perspective, I think we'll have, we'll, we'll have better products that are more fiscally sound. 
Are there any other different groups out there who felt like they were left out uh, of the first budget proposal who are getting good news that their programs are going to have greater funding levels because of this? Well, you're, you're, you'll see that through the legislation process all, all the time. Uh, you know, from that's that when the governor, every year when the governor introduces his budget, there are individuals who come to the Capitol to, 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 to say, you know, they, they've been, they feel like they've been left out or they've advocated for additional spending. That's no, that's no different than any other year. One of them is uh, a group uh, with adults and children who have uh, developmental disabilities. And there's uh, courts, the courts have said through the Ligus, uh, Ligus Consent Decree that the state woefully underfunds these programs and in fact creates real suffering for people with developmental disabilities who can't get into the programs they need because we just don't fund them to a level that allows them to hire enough staff or pay staff enough to keep them on the job and helping uh, people with autism, with other uh, types of de developmental disabilities. Uh, advocates in that arena say we should be funding that by about $280 million more a year than we already are. The governor recently ratcheted that up from $77 million to $122 or so. Um, that's not even halfway there to take care of the problem if you listen to the advocates there. One other piece of information is that the, uh, in the American Rescue Plan, Congress said it states that invest in programs like this, programs that we think matter, we'll, we'll kick in more money as the federal government. If you put more in, the feds will put in more as well. That's the matching dollars we always hear about. Why not max that out and take advantage of all the federal money that's available if you're in Springfield? Why are we being stingy with people oh, I in the I wouldn't say we're being stingy. I mean, we're, those, are, those are exactly the conversations that we're having. Uh, trying to figure out how we how we maximize spending. It, it, the budget is a it's a statement of our priorities. It, it speaks to who we are as a state, and what we're what we're doing right now is trying to figure out how we make those investments that make the most that serve the most good for the most people. Uh, those are exactly the conversations we're having, and how we can utilize the the significant resources coming from the federal government to assist our, the efforts that we've already made. There are 18,000 people with special needs trying to get services. Is there is there anybody higher on that list? No, uh, listen. There, there are priorities for, 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 edu for education. There, everybody. The, the, the good thing for us is uh, that we've got a lot of folks who, are, who are priority. Uh, the bad thing for us is we have finite resources. Uh, so we, we are working through those issues every day uh, to make sure that we, we have investments that will make the most good for the most people. Uh, there was a controversial bill that came up for discussion in the Senate Executive Committee on Wednesday afternoon. If I understand correctly, the, it was Senator Mike Hastings' bill. He was on our program last week. He's brought this bill up several times. It failed. The bill was defeated. But then it was revived again. The Senate president walked in. His attorney walked in. What happened? Well, I mean, I, I wasn't in the executive committee, so I can't speak to exactly what happened. You've heard uh, by now. I, I, I've, I've, heard, I've heard a recount of it, but like I said, I wasn't, I wasn't in the committee, so I don't know exactly what happened. What I would say is it's no different than any part, other part of the legislative process where there will be different perspectives and disagreements about, about a piece of legislation. It was between uh, the labor and the trades and, and the Black Caucus, I understand. Well, again, uh, it's no different than any other uh, disagreement that happens or, or, or dis dispute that might happen about, or, uh, about the perspective of a piece of legislation. So people have those continued discussions and make sure that uh, they, they're resolved to, to the benefit of most people. Are you okay with how that went down? How what went down? Uh, the executive committee yesterday. Uh, I, again, I wasn't there, so I, I, I can't speak to it. All right. Uh, we'll cover it. It has to do with some of the different labor standards and the hiring practices in uh, factories, uh, essentially, in, in uh, some dangerous settings. 
uh, there's been sort of a long back and forth about who gets jobs where, who gets the good paying jobs, and uh, it's been kind of interesting to understand some of the tensions there. Organized labor does a tremendous job here in this state uh, to make sure that you know, working men and women are protected. Uh, what, what you are seeing from folks and uh, people that I represent and my colleagues in the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus represent, they, they, they want to make sure that there are good paying jobs for the people that we represent, good for the families who live in our districts, and that's, that, those, are the, those are the types of conversations and commitments we'll continue to work on. Uh, we've, uh, you were at the very center of tackling systemic racism through the four different pillars of the Black Caucus through these different, uh, I want to get to that in just a minute, but uh, have you seen examples of systemic racism in trades, in the labor unions? I, I would say there's systemic, there's systemic racism built into all of our systems. Uh, that's, that goes back to the discussion we were having in terms of the four pillars, because systemic racism does not mean an individual is racist. It means that advantages have been built into systems to the benefit of some, and disadvantages built into the in the systems to the disadvantage of others. So that's what. Uh, so it's it's not just it's not just the trades. It's it's our educational system. It's our economic system. It's it's healthcare. Uh, you you hear often that you know individuals who are who go into hospitals don't get the treatment that they that they that they that they that they're seeking because of some of the, some of the racist some of the systemic racism built into into systems. It's, but it's okay for us to have those discussions about how we address them. It's okay for us to engage in these candid conversations about addressing and dismantling systemic racism. I think we have an obligation to do that, and that's what the Illinois Legislative Black Caucus's four pillars were all about. I remember when uh, there was the bill signing ceremony at the University of Illinois Law School. You made a specific point to say something that you just said there. Just because we say there's systemic racism doesn't mean that you, in the audience, I think you were speaking to, are a racist. Why was it important to make that point uh, in that place or in that time to, to people who, who may have been listening? Because I, I think that oftentimes we, you know, we, we, we get caught up in this discussion that somehow when we, when we address systemic racism that it becomes personal as if it's a, it's a personal attack and it's not. It's an attack on systems that have been built up over time and when, when there is when there's when disadvantages have been built up over so, over so, many, over so many years and decades then when you start to dismantle them to those who have been benefiting from them, it feels like an attack. Equity is not an attack. It's, a, it's about sharing everybody having the same, the same opportunities as everyone else. And that's what, the, that's what those four pillars were all about. And that's what this discussion is all about. I th and you might say that over enough time, complacency combined with apathy would become the ally of discrimination or systemic racism. Sure. If people weren't woke, I guess is the term. <laughs> You know, I, I don't, I don't use, I don't use woke, but uh, I think, I think there is an awakening and a reckoning going on with, uh, within our, within our own individual consciousness, and we are seeing what, what I, what I saw from the last year, that so many, so many folks who did not understand the, 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 the fights that, you know, I, my colleagues have made on behalf of the people that we represent, when we were, when that, if there was a benefit to the pandemic, folks were sitting at home and they, they got to live through our eyes, and they got to see the challenges that we see. Um, and that, and, and that, that, that was beneficial to us because you know, empathy requires being able to walk in someone else's shoes. And we saw that over the last year, and that, that's, how you, that's how we got to the place of passing those four pillars. I remember the summer back in June, late May or in June, uh, during a lot of the time of unrest there, uh, that fears seemed heightened. And I don't know how, maybe some psychologists could evaluate you know, how much of that 
was because people felt bottled up and cooped up because of the pandemic. Plus how much of that, it, it just seemed covering it, being there as a reporter, documenting some of the different reactions to it, it seemed that people were more afraid. Fear was a, a heightened sense at that time. Throughout our history, uh, as a country, I think that law enforcement has sometimes been there to, to, to soothe that fear, to provide that sense of calm and safety. And so then, then there was this, I guess, how do you evaluate that role of, of fear and safety in these discussions about policing, law enforcement, and how we handle uh, that, how we protect property and protect life uh, as a society? There have been so many law enforcement officers during, during the, the last year, and even, bef even before, uh, who, who wanted to be partners in that discussion, who've said, uh, not just privately, but publicly, very publicly, we need to be partners in, in the progress that we're trying to make. Uh, and I applaud them for that. I applaud them for coming to the table and being willing to step up and have these, the, and the, and when we talk about racism and, and, and systemic racism and America's original sin and all those kinds of things that, that we've talked about, it, those are very difficult discussions because it requires, you know, the most, the most challenging thing you can do is self-evaluation. And when we, are, when we have to have these discussions, these self-evaluations, they're tough. Uh, because it, it requires us to not look at the best of, of who we are, but look at some of the challenges that we faced. And it, when, when we, we've, we've been able to do that, and, I, and I've, I've been glad of the partnership that law, some in law enforcement have, have wanted to have uh, in, that, in that moment, and it helped us to get to this place where reform is as part of the conversation. Changing the systems that we've all been always been a part of is part of the conversation. That's and that only happens when you when you're able to have partnership between communities, between law enforcement, so you can have these very difficult conversations in a very authentic way. We've talked a lot and covered a lot of the intentions of the Black Caucus in the police reform bill and the other three pillars as well. Um, so we know what your aim was, but put down some markers for us. Two years, three years, five years from now, how will we judge whether that piece of legislation was a success or a failure? Uh, and on, not just not just the, the criminal justice, not just the safety act, but all of the pillars. I think when you see significant improvements in the quality of life for all Illinois, you know that's. I think that the again the, another one of the, uh, the misconceptions is that the pillars were put that were pushed by the Black Caucus were just for Black people. That's not the truth. The pillars are for everybody because when, when black people do well, everybody does well. When there is when there, we have a fair and equitable criminal justice system, everybody does well. When we have a system that is economically sound, where good economic opportunities are created, everybody does well. When we have a healthcare system that looks at the looks at the patient and makes sure that they are taken care of appropriately, everybody does well. When you have an education system that adequately and appropriately prepares our children for the future, everybody does well. So I don't want I don't, the misconception that the pillars are just for black people, it, it, it is just that, it's a misconception because the, the judgment on how we've been, we're being successful is how we turn our state around so that everybody's doing well. And that's, that's, what the, that's, the, that's the goal of those, of those four pillars. You mentioned self-evaluation. It's interesting to me because uh, it's not just, uh, media does not just cast our glaring eye of judgment on politicians or on different trades or different industries or parts of society, but sometimes that uh, spotlight comes on us too. This week, Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot, uh, made an interesting decision halfway through her term. She declined, she said she was gonna grant one-on-one -on -one interviews only with journalists of color. 
And she said she was doing this to make a point that newsrooms in Chicago weren't diverse enough and she wanted to kind of draw attention to that. And then there was the backlash and a lot of people. What, what point do you think she was trying to make there? I think you know, making more, having more voices in the room was the point uh, I think the mayor was trying to make. Uh, we, we've got to, you know, again, do this self-evaluation where we talk about, you know, the challenges that have, been ex that have existed, but making sure that we tear those barriers down. Until we tear barriers down, we're never going to get to the place we, want, we all want to go as a, as a society and as a community. And I say community, meaning all of us, you know, all 12 plus million people in the state of Illinois, we're one community. Whether you live on the south side of Chicago in the Chatham neighborhood, whether you live in, west suburb, in the west suburbs, or you live in Algonquin or, or in Gurney or Cairo, no matter where you are, we, we're one community. And if we can have those discussions, I think that's, that's what's important. We've got, we've got to look at ourselves as one community and one state because we're all, moving in the, we're all moving together, or at least we should be. And that's the goal. I think that's what the mayor was trying to highlight. She wants to make sure, and, I, and again, I, I haven't spoken to the mayor directly about this, but I would imagine having talked to her about other things and knowing her perspective, that that's, she wants to highlight that in order for us to, to have this shared vision, we've got to have enough voices in the room who can, who can, who can who can lift up the voices and the questions of individual communities. Without a doubt, it is a privilege to sit in a chair like this, have a job like this, and be involved in documenting the front row of history, the first draft of history, as they often say it. Um, but when you zoom out and look at the entire industry of, of journalists, it is often those people who start from a place of privilege who can afford to work those low-paying jobs early on and sort of climb their way up because they have assistance maybe from family or from uh, some, and, and so that sort of becomes a filtration process. I don't know that it was ever intentional, but for people to climb that ladder, to be in the seat, so to speak, uh, they had to have a head start. And I think that sort of indirectly or directly filters a lot of other people out of, so I, I think it all kind of comes back. You made the point that um, when we look out for people, who, uh, people of color, it helps everybody. One way I think we do that in, in media is that, look, we want to restore our trust. We want to make sure that the voices that make up our questions uh, have a full perspective that address everybody. And when we have those blind spots, uh, it erodes our, I think, trust in our audience. And, and we want to make that whole. I, I, it might be, have a touch point to what you were saying. Absolutely. And, and I, I think that's, it's, it's critical that we have those voices in the room. And that's why, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to do a plug here for my alma mater, the University of Illinois Springfield, their PAR program. Having, having individuals who go through that program, but then are able to get, uh, get experience uh, in, in, in here at the Capitol, you know, get experience here in local markets, it, it, it's, it's, it's critical that we do that so that we can lift those voices up. Uh, and you know, being able, to, and that, again, going back to that self-evaluation, because I think that's that's that it, it's good that that the, you know the mainstream media understands that it's necessary that different perspectives, and, and it's it's it, it's not that it's an intentional blind spot, but you've never walked in those shoes. So having some, having someone who has walked in those shoes, and having them in the room when those stories are being told, it's critical to making sure that the overall message gets through that we are that one community. I didn't even put that plug in his ear about the University of Illinois Springfield and the Public Affairs Reporting Program, but we've benefited from many of those interns who've come through. Uh, some of our guests may recognize Charlie Wheeler, who uh, taught, he's a professor emeritus who taught that program for so long and has brought many young budding journalists up uh, in that program. Before we let you go, you mentioned your history in Springfield uh, as a student there, but there was also a, a recent altercation that uh, we wanted to ask you about. It's been covered in the local press and some of the papers. Uh, but 
I guess just tell me, you're driving home from work one day, is that well, right? I was, I was actually leaving, leaving here, um, you know, in the Senate, pursuant to Senate protocols, we have to be, uh, we have to be tested. Uh, so I was leaving the Stratton building and I, after, after getting tested, uh, driving, I was actually driving to meet someone for dinner and uh, I was on the phone with my, my wife and kids as I usually am when I'm here. And uh, my, my wife was the one who alerted me to the horn blowing. And because I was talking to her, looking ahead, driving, and she says, you know, what, what am I hearing? And I was like, I don't know. I, I looked up in the rearview mirror and there's somebody driving their car in the back of me and driving towards my car and flashing their lights and honking their horn. And um, so I, I, I was like, I don't, I don't know what the heck is going on. The guy pulls around me and slams on his brakes. So I slam on my brakes and immediately I'm thinking, okay, you know, is this, what, what, what's going on? Because my car does have legislative plates. Um, so Do you think I, he noticed that? Oh, I, I, there, there's no question in my mind he noticed that. Uh, the, the fact that he was directly behind my car and it's, um, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not covered or my license plate isn't covered. And you come to, when you're in Springfield, those plates, those plates stick out. Um, so it's not like they're inconspicuous. And um, so I, you know, he pulls up. I, I, I pull up next to him and I, I, I'm on the phone with my wife. But I, I was like, I'm, you know, I'm, I want you to know I'm getting ready to call. I'm calling the police. And he pulls the, he pulls the gun out and points the gun at me. And um, so I'm, I immediately get away from him, pull away from him. And, um, you know, just uh, I'm on the phone with the 911 dispatcher and telling her where I am. And um, I, as long as I've been in Springfield, a, a traumatic situation like that, I, I didn't realize where I was. So I was giving her the wrong street. And um, so, you know, it was a red light at the corner of, you know, Chatham and, and Lawrence. And uh, so he, he stopped and went through the, the light at Lawrence. There was a car, car between us, so I went around the car. And um, so I turned around to do, you know, see what street, where the street sign was when he went through. And uh, so I tell the dispatcher, you know, what street I was on. That could be disorienting. It was, it was, it was, it was disorienting. And I, so I, and when I, I, I'm looking up at the street sign, but I also see him. And his, so he. He's behind you again? No, he's behind, he was, so he, he makes a beeline for my car. And uh, as I'm, as I'm, I'm on the phone with the police, and he starts following me, he's chasing my car again. Uh, he's got the gun out of the window, pointing the gun at me, and I'm swerving and uh, telling the police where I am. And so he, inexplicably turns off Chatham Road and I keep going down Chatham Road and uh, he never fires again. he never fires he never, the fi never fires the handgun um, but he, uh, he, he I say and I, and I really don't I don't know where I don't know where he came from I don't know how long he was behind me I don't know any of that stuff I really wasn't paying attention you'd never seen him before never seen him before and you had just come off of uh, a pretty tense time in Springfield in the legislature. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was it was you know weeks after <clears throat> the passage of that of the Safety Act, which we talked about earlier. Um, so it was, it was there were and, and not to mention coming on the heels of you know January 6th. So I mean, it was it's a very tense time. Uh, I believe so. He, there has been uh, some court proceedings. Uh, there have been, I should say, some court proceedings on this matter. Uh, I I understand he's pleading not guilty. Yes. So this will still be worked out. Um, but what, what did you, it sounds like you felt you were being targeted in a way, whether it was uh, he stumbled upon your car and saw you or singled you out somehow? 
Yeah, I, I don't think there's any, there's, there's, no, there's no question in my mind that he knew I was a state legislator. Um, throughout the, the, the passage of the Safety Act and after, uh, we've had significant, we've had uh, negative mail, phone calls, email. Uh, there was a group who's posted a, a picture of my entire family on their website, uh, including our dog. Um, you know, with negative negative posts, and things like that. I've received received death threats, um, and, and, to, and you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm the elected official. I, I, I get that. Um, I'm I am I'm okay with uh, you know I, the, I, I'm okay with criticism. I, it's part it's part of the it's part of part of the narrative and part of the conversation that we have to have. People disagree, and that's okay. I'm okay I'm okay with disagreements, uh, but to be attacked. To have to have my life threatened, that's not part of that's not part of our discourse, and to have and to have my family and my and my minor children uh, targeted, that that's not okay. Uh, those those things should, that should never happen. My wife nor my kids signed up to be elected officers. Um, my my our family pet did not sign up to be an elected elected official. Uh, so for someone to post now, there's their an picture. Idea. Say again. Now there's an idea. Uh, well, he, hey, he, he's got the personality for it, and certainly the smile. Uh, but you know, there's that for someone to do those types of things. That and that's why you have seen this negative discourse uh, continue. Uh, folks, uh, there there are a lot of people who don't want to get involved in public service because they believe that the narrative has turned so negative. And I'm I'm, I'm certainly not one of those. I will continue to represent the people who send me to Springfield to act on their behalf. I'm going to act on. I'm going to act based on my convictions. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to continue to work on all those things because that's what the people of the 17th district sent me to do. Th those are really traumatic and I think uh, split-second moments where it could, anything could turn uh, one way or the other. One of the interesting subplots there is that police officers at large. I know there's disagreement even within their ranks, but many of them have said. Uh, that the effect of, the, uh, of exposing them to greater risk or complaint would, would have an effect on their morale. And that some police officers, frankly, were down on, on this idea of, of the legislation that passed. How did, how did your interactions with law enforcement go in the immediate aftermath? Do you feel they had your back? I, I do. I do. I mean, there was, and what you will find, um, I, 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 would, I, would, I would argue that it, you'd be very hard-pressed to find anyone in law enforcement who's ever had any up close interactions with me, who would say to you they have a negative opinion of me? Uh, they 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 understand that I have worked very hard to make sure that we have a balanced approach uh, to the legislation that we pass. But also, I've, I've I've worked very hard to support officers. Uh, I've worked very hard to make sure that they have the resources they need uh, to be successful. And in that moment, you the the law I can't say enough. The Capitol Police officers. The Springfield Police Department, the Sangamon County Sheriffs—they were—they 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 they stepped up in that moment. But also, Illinois State Police, Chicago Police Department—all of them—they stepped up in that moment. They were—and that's—that is—but that is the interaction that everybody should have the benefit of. I want everyone to be to have that feeling of immense security and protection. And that's what that's what I felt. And that that should not be reserved for me because I'm a state senator. It should be reserved for me because I'm a citizen of the state of Illinois. Some of the police who protected our nation's capital, sustained injuries, died, were hit with lead pipes in the face, and yet it was a politically divided politics of red versus blue 
overcame the desire to investigate the people who committed those crimes, to have a commission. Now, to be clear, the FBI and the Department of Justice are still investigating and prosecuting on the criminal side. But what do you make of that, that the divisions in Congress could be so deep that the overwhelming majority of the House Republicans would say, we're not going to sanction this commission to investigate who was battering, bruising, in some cases, killing police officers. What does it say about our discourse that we can't even investigate those types of things? Uh, that, that's how negative our discourse has gotten. We have, we've, we've got to move past, you know, Democrats and Republicans, red states, blue states. We can't, we, we cannot live that way. If, the, if you know, uh, one of our favorite sons said a house divided against itself cannot stand. And that, that's never been more true than right now. We have got, that's why, that's why I talk about Illinois as one community. We have got to get past, you know, these are Democratic, Republic, Democratic ideals or Republican ideals. These are ideals that are on the, in the best interest of the people of the state of Illinois. And that's the only way we can act. Or conversely, ideals that are in the best interest of all American citizens. If Congress can't, can't come together and, and, and deal with those issues, we're truly lost. You know, I, I, I've often talked about my work with my colleagues in the, in the General Assembly, both during my time in the Senate and my time in the House. And I, 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 I pride myself on being able to work across the aisle with my colleagues in a bipartisan way. Now, there are some times where we disagree, and that's okay. And there, there's nothing wrong with being, it, disagreeing, but we should, it should never be personal. It should always be about the best interests of the people we represent. And when we, if, we've, if we've lost that ability to have those honest, authentic, candid conversations, then we really are lost. That's a great segue for our next segment. Representative Tom Bennett and Senator Scott Bennett, members of the same family, but of different political parties, join us next to help us understand how they sort out their political disagreements, maybe some family disagreements along the way. Senator Sims, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Mark, for having me. We're back in a moment. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. Our political system seems further divided today than perhaps any time in recent modern history, besides maybe in the 1960s, but even still, if you look no further than January 6th, the election, the political battles back and forth during the coronavirus and how state and federal governments should handle that challenge, the Democrats and the Republicans seem pretty far divided. Joining us right now to help us see how we might overcome those divisions or fight through them, is a Democrat and a Republican. They just happen to be from the same family. Representative Tom Bennett from Gibson City. Good to have you with us. Thank you, glad to be here. Uh, and his nephew, State Senator Scott Bennett from Champaign. Good to have you as well. Thank you. So, same family, yeah. different parties, also different chambers. Can we start sorting out which is really the upper chamber here? I know the Senate thinks Sure. They have the upper hand. Well, I, I think historically it's been the Senate chamber, both in quality of policies coming out, but also just in the quality of members. But Tom is certainly the exception to that rule. Where, where are the political disagreements most on display? In the State House or over the supper table? Oh, definitely. I'd say on the House, house floor. Uh, you get some, obviously, some strong opinions and, and uh, a number of bills that create a lot of concerns and issues and, and discussions uh, on the House floor. Uh, we do have some discussions. Uh, we don't, we've not gotten together near as much with COVID, and I, I really miss that, but we try to get together for birthdays and um, 
holiday times, and when we get everybody together, we, we take about 10 minutes, I guess, uh, if, if my wife Kathy lets us, or if, if uh, Stacy lets us, we go off to the side, we talk for about 10, 15 minutes, we get all that worked out, and then from there it's all about family. Now, I, I've wanted to have you both on for some time just to kind of uh, explore this idea. I guess I should admit or confess to our audience that we could have picked more strident members of the legislature. I don't know that either of you are known as uh, perhaps someone who's going to torch your opponent on the floor. You're maybe among the more friendly or agreeable group of the legislature. Is that fair? Yes. Why take that approach when so many others are eager to really dig in, make a name for themselves, appeal to the base of the party, right? It, that, that's happening more today. I would say it's partly how you're raised. Um, you know, I grew up as a Democrat in a very Republican area. Um, if you uh, have a different view, you could express that, but you're never going to get anyone to come to your side if you're insulting, if you're talking down to somebody, or if you're acting uh, just from the get-go like your answer is the only right one. So I think that helped a lot, and it's helped me in my public career. But I think it also helps, at least in my district, it is very divided. And so I think people want somebody that's going to try to find solutions, try to reach across the aisle. Um, much like my district on the Champaign-Urbana side is more liberal, and the Danville side more conservative. Um, so we just try to find where I think the state is, which is some kind of form of balance. It sounded like he still thinks he can persuade Republicans to come to his side of the aisle. But in a Republican primary, if you do that, you'll be accused of flip-flopping. You've betrayed your ideology. Well, it's kind of a balance, I guess you could say. Um, going back to the earlier question, uh, for, for me, we've always been on different sides for at least 20, 30 years, but we've always been able to discuss uh, respectfully. Uh, we don't agree on things, but that's, that's not bad. We come together trying to find solutions. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that still going on, on the House floor uh, as well. Uh, we do a number of things. I mean, JCAR, if I may, on the House side, is a great example where you have six Republicans, uh, six Democrats, and they have to come together and really work through issues. And I think from everything I hear, that really is a great example in a lot of ways of how we can work together. And, and there's a number of things that we try to do outside of the House, if I may. Uh, we try to get dinners together between Republicans and Democrats, um, and we take an hour or two for supper or dinner, uh, and we go and, and talk about issues, and sometimes we just get a chance to know each other, talk about family, you know, what did you do before you were state representative or, or state senator? Those kinds of things. And that helps develop that rapport where really maybe part of where we're trying to get to, if I may, is that the, the, the value or the idea of trust is not what it once was. And we've got to really work on bringing that trust back up. Once we get that trust where it needs to be at, a lot of things can get done, I think, in a lot of good ways. That's an interesting thought. We hear tell of those older stories of politicians, you know, duking it out from nine to five sure. and then at six o'clock going to have a drink or have dinner together and uh, sort of mend the fence, if you will. Yeah. Uh, are you telling me that's still alive and well? Uh, I'm, I'm pushing that from, from what we're trying to do. We try to get dinners together um, and I, I reach out to some of our Democratic friends. As you get three or four Democrats together, I'll get three or four Republicans. We'll just sit down and talk. Uh, you know, no cameras, no tape recorders, those kind of things. But we just sit down and try to learn more about each other. And I, I think that's, that's part of what we need to do. So right, well, it's, it's alive. It's definitely alive. It's good to hear, I suppose. I, now the cameras are on, so let's dig into a little bit of that. One of the more contentious debates that the legislature just settled on a uh, fairly partisan basis was the police reform and cash bail issue. Uh, I think you both took different votes on this matter. Why oppose it? Uh, to me, I felt it was more, it was hurting our, our police force, our law enforcement. 
Uh, it was handcuffing than what they were trying to do. Uh, we need to find ways to support our police. And I grant you there may be issues, but let's work through those issues. Let's not do a broad brush across the entire state, across all the issues, to where we really tie the hands of law enforcement. Um, they've been there for us for years, uh, and we need to find a way to support them. So that's, in a nutshell, uh, kind of where I'm coming from. Um, without getting too far in the weeds, and, and again, sure. I know Scott had a couple issues, and, and he felt strong about those as well. So, well, you had interesting remarks at one of the bill signings at the University of Illinois Law School, where I think you graduated from. I did. Uh, that you didn't start out necessarily uh, a believer, but that over the course of time, listening and, and learning the issue, especially when it comes to cash bail, right? Uh, that that you had an evolution there. Well, and so you're right. Before I came here, I was a prosecutor for many years. Uh, and so I, I, when I would hear about what's going on in Springfield or elsewhere, uh, that I thought made my, things that made my job a little harder, uh, I, I probably resented it in my own way as well. Um, but what I've done in these last few years is really try to take the time to listen to both sides. Um, I think that bill was carefully balanced um, to recognize that in, in many of the pushback we got, when I would talk to my officer friends and I'd say, well, what you think is in that bill isn't even in the bill. Once we got to talk about that, and I know there's also trailer bills and things like that coming along, but the, I think the frustration is, is, is not to say that anything that we do that says we're going to have more accountability in law enforcement is an attack on law enforcement. It's not. Um, it's a question really of do we want to hold you to a higher standard or a lower one? Most of my officers, the ones that I certainly respect, uh, say, actually, what's in the bill? We do that already. Um, so we're not concerned about that, but we all we know there are some departments with lower standards. There are some officers that don't take uh, their responsibilities as seriously as the other ones. I think that's what the bill is aimed toward. And in, in respect to the cash bail situation, um, it's the it's not the suggestion that everybody should uh, be allowed um, out of of custody while they're waiting trial. We do need to recognize who's dangerous and who's not. But money isn't keeping us any safer. If it's a serious violent crime, you should stay in custody until your trial, regardless of how much money you have. And, if, and, and the opposite of that, if it's a nonviolent offense, we should trust that you're going to come back to court until you prove that you're not responsible. When it comes to voter, oh, you want to chime in there, go ahead. I, I do, if you don't mind. Um, one concern I had was the amount of time that was really discussing the bill between all parties. There were some discussions through the summer, perhaps, and, and beyond, but when you put a bill in front of you, that takes a whole new different ballgame, a whole new different perspective of it. And from everything we were hearing from our law enforcement, they really were not part of that decision of the bill. Uh, they really felt like they were left out. And I think, again, to bring everyone together with the parties, they need to be part of that discussion as well. When it comes to uh, voters, and I would say most elected officials, I almost never question their sincerity or uh, the authenticity in how strongly they feel about something. Almost always, that's genuine. What's different, more likely these days, is the set of information that they are informing themselves with. And it seems that even that is divided, how we get our media, how we get our information. You can always go online and find something to reinforce what you hoped would be true. Right. Is that complicating your job? And why do you think that is? No question it is. Um, you know, we get a lot of calls, positive and negative. And what I always ask the people in my office to ask is, do you want to call back? And so we try to call back every person that, that calls us, and I want to talk to them about these issues. That's my job. But I do think it's interesting when they say, well, what about this? It's often an example of maybe a national story that I've never heard of. And if I come back with my own points, they've never heard of what I'm talking about. Because in many respects, there's no, 
yeah, paper of record. There's no, there's no uh, one news source that everyone gets at least the basic facts they can interpret differently. We're getting entirely different sets of facts. And that makes it very hard to have a, a rational, reasonable conversation because we both are, you know, both Democrats, Republicans, I mean, are, are being, you know, told here's information um, and here's how to interpret it. And by the way, we're never going to mention stuff that doesn't, isn't consistent with that line of thinking. And if that bit of information soothes the person's predisposed ideas, then the, and the politicians reinforce those, we have these spirals going in different directions. And that sort of betrays the whole idea of finding a compromise. No question. Can I, can I use the example from Capitol Hill just this week and get your, your response? A lot of people watched this and saw it happen. There were only 35 Republicans in the House in Congress to vote to approve this uh, commission, independent commission, to investigate uh, the storming of the Capitol, that riot on January 6th. You're going to have to forgive me. I have not been able to watch much what was going on in the, in the I understand, Capitol. but... We've been really focusing on these things, so I'm, I'm sorry. I understand, uh, but a congressman from Ohio, a Democrat, stood to the floor and thanked the 35 that would vote for it, but to the others he told them, uh, I'm going to paraphrase him here, that eventually they're, they're not living in the same reality, that they're adopting some alternative set of facts. H have you seen anything on that front generally about where we get our information that troubles you about where we're heading? I, absolutely. Uh, I don't want to repeat what Scott was saying, but I think it's, it's very true. We, we reinforce what you're saying, Mark, what we already believe, and things that we, we seem to hook up with are the things reinforce what we're thinking, what we believe. Um, and what concerns me, I guess, we, the conversations are important to have, but what happens is you read those things. Facebook is a great example. The drama that appears there, when issues start happening here, FOID cards or just different issues, our emails light up, the phone calls light up, Facebook blows up, and the drama is so strong that once the drama's there, the, the discussions are awfully hard to have, which are so critical to really get the true message of what's out there. So the drama goes everywhere, and that makes a real challenge uh, to get past that. Uh, sometimes all we do is, is, all we can do is really sit and listen. In fact, listen quite a bit on some of the issues, whether it's long emails and you try to reply a little bit back, or phone calls that can take a while uh, for both our staff and myself. Because people are upset. Oh, absolutely. It's, and, yes. But maybe they don't have the full picture all the time. All the time. That's right. People are busy. A great example is just people's response to the pandemic we've been going through the last year, right? I mean, every time that you know I'm asked about this, I'm often saying, well, you can ask me about COVID if you'd like, but don't listen to politicians unless they went to medical school. Right? If you or a loved one was diagnosed with a serious illness, you would not call your state representative. But for some reason, with COVID, that's what we're, we're looking at. Well, the president says this, my congressman says this on Fox or C-SPAN or CNN, and so I'm gonna take that advice even over people who've studied uh, you know, diseases their entire life. And that, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. But then at the same time, we say, I wish my kids were in school, I wish my businesses were open, but we're not taking the advice of people who are experts in these fields, and instead, we're taking advice of people who often pander to a certain group because of um, what they think will benefit them in the next election. It sounds like he's saying, consider the source. Make oh. sure you're talking to someone who's Thank qualified. You, yep, take two, take two steps, think about it before you go further, and ask some questions like, does this make sense? And with the source, well, where's it coming from? That's, that's great, absolutely. It's a good media literacy tip as well, I suppose. You know, they say we journalists don't know much about anything, just a little about a lot. I try to ask the right people the questions and hopefully facilitate those conversations. I could go on. 
But I want to thank you for coming on and talking about this, and we'll continue to stay uh, tuned over the next uh, week or two here in Springfield as we sort out the biggest issues left, uh, the budget, the energy legislation, all of that complicated stuff. I hope to hear from you and your colleagues in those weeks to come. Senator Bennett, Representative Bennett. Mark, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're back in just a moment. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. That does it for us this week. Thank you for joining us. As always, our full extended interviews are up online. You can also find our podcast version of Capital Connection there. We hope you'll join us at the same time next Sunday. For Capital Connection, I'm Mark Maxwell. Stay connected to the Capitol all week. Follow us on Twitter at CapConnectIL or watch reports from our Capitol team on WCIA3. You can also find us on Facebook or WCIA.com.